You are now listening to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Kristen. Hi. Now, Kristen, if I had to ask, what is, okay, what what's on your mind or an even better one, what do you typically enjoy? What do I typically enjoy? Okay. Well, um, I enjoy uh, researching and learning about Germanic mythology. Um, and uh, beyond that, I am an author, so I'm kind of a little bit of a multitasker. I dabble in fiction writing, and then I also have the more academic stuff that I work on um, for school and whatnot. I'm currently in an MA program. Do they kind of fuel each other in a way, like researching and kind of like doing a lot of your academic research might fuel some of your writing as well, too? Because I'm a, I'm a medieval fan myself, too, only mostly from like video games and stuff. But Greek mythology is like the one topic that I just go off and off about just because it's so fascinating. I love like especially the religion correlation, like how back then there were so many gods compared to like a little bit of Christianity where it's kind of just one. Then they had them for personification for the sea, personification for war. And I was like, that makes it so much much cooler i know that sounds dumb but if you're going out to go catch like a bunch of fish for your family on the ocean you're praying to a god who controls the ocean that to me i don't know it just seems more powerful you know if poseidon's looking down on you while you catch a giant swordfish and reel it <laughs> on your boat yeah yeah definitely um and i i'm totally fascinated by i guess paganism in general um germanic paganism was definitely sort of the springboard for me um this sort of helped me get into other Germanic mythology beyond just the gods and things like that. Um, but when it comes to my fiction writing, uh, that was sort of the initial intention was that they should sort of inform each other. I have since strayed off when I have other ideas for stories that are less related to the mythology, less related to medieval history or, um, you know, the pseudo medieval kind of fantasy, that sort of thing. I've sort of gone off on tangents more recently with my fiction. Um, but a lot of my stuff still is inspired by the mythology as well it just kind of depends on whatever idea i have at any given moment <laughs> well how did you even come across just wanting to study that is that something you learned in school like i learned greek mythology for a class out of like the 15 years i went and then college you had to take an extracurricular to do the yeah you had to specifically go and get that greek mythology class i'm like but it wasn't taught in the regular education system i learned from graphic universe those books that are like comic writings of hercules and oh, people yeah, getting yeah. their head smashed in i'm like i'm 12 and this is great <laughs> I actually, I have a graphic novel of Beowulf that was a grad gift from one of my professors. When I finished my bachelor's, she gave it to me. Um, I, I don't know that it's the same series, but it's it's a graphic novel of Beowulf, so it's it's pretty cool. Um, Be so, honest, Angelina Jolie ruined that CGI movie. <laughs> I, I'm not a fan of some of the stuff they did stylistically with the movie. However, I am not sure that Beowulf lends itself to adaptation very well in general. Um, just the structure of it and stuff, you know, the way we do sort of, you know, the, the stereotypical movie structure. I don't know that a lot of Germanic myth follows it to the T. And so, uh, you know, inevitably an adaptation is going to be a little, little off base. I would love to see things adapted well, but 
for most of the myths that I'm interested in, I haven't seen it yet. So it's like all the people that watch the Disney um, movie of Hercules and then they watch the rock version and they're like, oh, my God, this is nothing like the. Di Where's the singing? I'm like, oh, no, it wasn't any of that. That was a Disney play on terms. And they got a lot of it wrong, which was kind of upsetting, because if you're an actual like Greek mythology fan or if you actually study ancient history in general, you're watching it like, all right, hang on a second. Doesn't so I'm, I'm not Greek mythology, but doesn't Hercules kill his wife? in the original myth or something to that effect like i know something weird like that happens it's in one of the challenges so like he does it's like kind of a part of hades fault as well too but like there was so much like with um this the for instance the pegasuses those are gorgon's blood like the snake lady you know medusa those are a whole like breed of like gorgons and stuff those things the blood makes the pegasuses and i was like zeus didn't make it from a cloud and then there's like Hera's the nice mother. I'm like, she's the one that did all that to Her Hercules in the first place. It wasn't that, but they needed a villain and they need a mother figure. And then they don't want kids to be tormented and have nightmares in the middle of the night. I'm like, teach them the horrible stuff. It's so they're less shocked about it. <laughs> I mean, Disney in general has a habit of um, <laughs> Disney-fying everything, obviously. Um, I mean, you know, all the old German fairy tales as well, things like, Snow White and Rapunzel they, they do their own little take on it obviously um I wish and I German fairy tales are not my area of specialization either so when I say that I'm pretty sure both Snow White and I know Rapunzel for sure um not sure about some of the other ones whether those are actually German fairy tales I think Cinderella okay. might be French so during the pandemic you know what I discovered all right so you know the movie Tangled yes the Rapunzel they lived in Corona Wait, what? Oh, they do. They do call it Corona. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Which is a little odd. I, I saw that. I was like, wait a minute. I'm in the middle <laughs> of a pandemic and their whole entire thing is Corona. I was like, is this a cons We're not, we weren't, we're not, I'm joking. It's not, but I'm just saying it's, it was interesting to see that. I was like, it's, I don't know. It's like the Simpsons when they predict something. It's like, was that prediction? Well, yeah, it's an interesting uh, choice of name because, you know, the name Gopunza is like, it comes from God, is it middle high German? I can't remember actually which dialect of German it is, but I think it means cabbage or something to that effect. <laughs> like it's, it's just an old German word. It's not even really a name exactly. <laughs> um, but so it's interesting that then, you know, this is a German fairy tale. You have a, a German name for the main character and then you name the, the kingdom Corona. It's like that kind of came out of nowhere, <laughs> but, uh, um, that's that's crazy because that, that was just the thing that came up to me and um it's interesting because like if you really look what do you think i guess attracts you more to at least let's stick in the field of research that you study in for instance the stuff that you're particular not in well it's not about me it's not about what i'm interested in but it's more of a concept of like i think we have more in relation to a lot of a different other like we pull a lot of stuff from greek 100 percent. we get a lot of our academics and a lot of like the literacy stuff too but there's a lot more in common with other religions i feel like too like um there's a podcast page called goddessy and he focused on strictly norse mythology but it seems like a lot nowadays it seems like we have more common with a lot of the norse stuff more than the factor of like the greek mythology type stuff too well generally i think a lot of it is somewhat kind of interconnected and there are similarities even between you know norse and and greek mythology for example you know you have thor is the god of thunder and zeus which they don't play the exact same role within the pantheons but um, there's certainly some overlap, I think, with all Indo-European paganism. Uh, one story that has a little bit of overlap that I've always found interesting is you have Achilles, I believe it's his mom, 
dipped him in the water yeah, by and the ankle. was holding him by the ankle and that's why the achilles heel so with siegfried who i specialize in um well he's also called um sigurd or sigurd I, I i'm not so good with the norse pronunciations versus the actual german ones um but he in his story bathes in the blood of fafnir the dragon and I think a leaf sticks on his back. And so it's very, very similar concept in that he has the one weak point that didn't get touched when he bathed in something. And ultimately it's his downfall because he gets stabbed in the back in most variations of the story in that weak spot. So Why I, I do get a little confused about which variation is which. I'm trying to think. I know that I believe in the Volsunga saga, he gets stabbed in the back. I can't remember in Destiny Bajunganbeed at the moment. Why do you think they always out of vulnerability and all these types of things? Like they get this being so much immense power and then they get like a small vulnerability or something. There's always a weapon that can kill a God. There's always something like a chance. It's like that little sliver of hope. If you're willing to like, cause I guess it depends. I mean, if you, at one point you probably hate your parents when you're like becoming an adult or something, you want to stand up to them and clench your fists. Like I'm going to make my own rules, but still I want you to make my dentist appointment. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's that kind of pushback, which I'm interested in to see how every religion kind of has that like one thing. There's this to do this against this in case this ever happens. And I'm like, that's just crazy how they thought that much through it. Yeah. And in the case of like individual, I, I guess um, they would sort of be heroic, weaknesses uh for lack of a better term uh with achilles and siegfried i don't necessarily know the symbolism of that it, a lot of what i've studied in terms of like the symbolism of mythology has pertained to like um specifically religious symbolism like when you're looking at sort of the transition from paganism to christianity that a lot of the germanic myths were written down after conversion to Christianity. And so you kind of have this like weird divide of acknowledging that these characters still worship the gods, but you know, they, Beowulf is especially um, blunt, I guess, or kind of blatant with this because you have like the little segments that are input that are talking about, um, you know, back, I can't remember the exact quote, but there's something about, you know, they, they were ignorant something to that effect, kind of like acknowledging like, oh, well, they were still ignorant. They were still worshiping the old gods. And, you know, we know better now, but gosh, I can't remember the line. I should know this line. <laughs> um, I know it's, it's towards the beginning. It's when they're in the, uh, the hall um, celebrating that they talk about and I'm, I'm thinking of the Seamus Haney translation, but anyway, I can't remember. I just remember keep thinking of Angelina Jolie as the monster. I'm like, good God. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, when it comes to the weaknesses, I'm not so sure what, I'm sure there is symbolism to it. Um, but I don't, I'm not actually familiar with what it is. So I can't elaborate on that, unfortunately. Because I am kind of curious, who's Siegfried? Who is, what, what, what's his role and who is he? So he's kind of your, I guess, archetypal hero in in a sense epic hero um he is there's a lot of different variations of his story basically any um germanic language speaking country has some sort of connection uh, i know that there is some connection in the ne netherlands i'm not as familiar with like their stuff but you have das nibelungenlied is middle high german um from germany and then you have the volsunga saga is um Old Norse, I believe. 
and he makes appearances in Beowulf his father is mentioned um when one of the bards is in the hall sort of uh talking about like the heroic deeds of old he talks about uh Zygmunds, um and then he talks about uh trying to think of what his name is in the anglo-saxon um he calls him something weird in the anglo-saxon Tala? i think it's it's Sinfjotli, but i don't remember what his anglo-saxon name is it gets really confusing with all the translations however that would be um essentially siegfried's half brother so it talks about his family in beowulf but it doesn't really mention siegfried by name However, he's kind of just the uh, quintessential dragon slayer figure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the other major dragon slayer that you have in European folklore that I'm aware of is uh, St. George, or St. Georg is what I would tend to call him. Um, but uh, I'm not... Are the dragons another form of demons? I'm not understanding the whole dragon thing. Like, where did that idea even spawn from? Sure. So uh, people tend to equate dragons with sin. In in the St. George mythology, I know that it's it's pretty much aligned with more or less an allegory for him battling his personal sins, personal demons, if you will. Um, In the context of stories like Beowulf, for example, um, I, I did a whole paper on Beowulf arguing about how the dragon in Beowulf contrasts that little tiny Zygmunt passage in Beowulf with the bard, because the bard talks about Zygmunt slaying a dragon, which in no extant versions of the the Volsung family story do we have Zygmunt fighting a dragon. So that's kind of interesting because it's pretty much Siegfried in every other variant. And if there was ever a version where Zygmunt fights the dragon, we don't have that at this point in time, um, but there's just this little mention of it in Beowulf. And so I sort of did a paper discussing the symbolism and sort of trying to make the argument about how the two the two passages contrast each other a little bit. Um, but at the end of the day, I do think that within the context of Beowulf, the dragon does represent Sen, for sure. Um, Beowulf even kind of acknowledges it himself towards the end of the manuscript. When you get into, the less blatantly Christian variants, which again, you know, Das Nibelungenlied, all of them were written down after the conversion to Christianity, but they maybe don't make quite so many allusions to Christianity throughout the text. So when you get into what it represents in those, I think it's a little bit less clear because obviously there wasn't a concept of sin in the way we understand it in Germanic paganism. Um, not, I mean, not in the Christian sense, anyway. Are a lot of these pieces missing? Because I know um, with Scotland and all those, like the Crusades, or, I don't know if it's the Crusades or whatever, when they were like, going with like their slavery thing. Um, I've talked to a few people who've kind of mentioned it. I've really never super looked into it. Is that all, like a lot of pieces that are missing because of that whole thing? Like the great uh, burning of Alexandria, for instance, there's a lot of stuff that we're probably never going to be able to know because of all of it that's been burned. Is that the same thing with this, that a lot of this was lost during all these hard times that people were going through, that some of it didn't carry on, and that's what we're kind of missing chunks? To be honest, I am not entirely sure what would have happened to some copies of different stories. I mean, it's possible that there were some that were oral histories that simply were never writ- really written down. Um, that's kind of the generally accepted uh, theory about most of the stories is that originally there were oral variants of the stories prior to them being turned into manuscripts in the Middle Ages. 
Um, but as for uh, when things might have been lost and where and why, it's not really 100% clear. Um, I know that a lot of the manuscripts were sort of neglected, for lack of a better word, until um, there was kind of like a revival in the 1800s, sort of this romanticism of um, pagan times, more or less, as simpler times. You know, you have like, a, you got like your Wordsworth poems talking about, you know, oh, to be a pagan, um, suckled in a creed outworn, and kind of getting into this idealized version of what they had been before that Christian influence came in. And so in the 1800s, you sort of had a rediscovery of some of those manuscripts that they had just been in private collections for however many hundreds of years. And suddenly there was this reinvigoration, um, this uh, sort of restored interest in all of those stories, um, which in Germany led to, you know, you have Wagner's operas. Um, everyone knows like Ride of the Valkyries, for example, the da 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 yeah. da da And that's based off of Das Nibelungenlied. Um, that's Siegfried's story, essentially in operatic form. He made some changes for sure, but um, that was part of that whole revival that happened in the 1800s. So prior to that, I don't know exactly what might have been lost because people weren't paying attention. Don't you wish you could go back in time to these moments and try and get someone to record more of this information that they had? Because I mean, what's interesting is a lot of like, I can speak a lot on Greek, for instance, but I can't speak a whole lot, obviously, in the field that you're in, because the only Norse thing I've ever played or anything even developed in that era, I would say, or coming from that region would be Assassin's Creed Odyssey or not Odyssey, um, Valhalla, the Viking one. Oh, yeah. And what I thought was really interesting is that they got a lot of stuff I never even thought of that kind of gives you another perspective. Like when you start, it's all about attacking kind of, it's all about killing. It's all about the stuff. And don't say video games don't teach you anything because this, <laughs> once you build a little civilization, you start getting like, you know, all these little places in your little colony, you're able to, someone comes up to you and says, you need to start logging everything that you're doing, your thoughts, your battles, everything and putting it in this book. And it's like a task at first. And then the guy actually starts getting interested into it where he's writing down the ledgers. He sees the money that comes in. It's all this type of thing of keeping account of things. That was kind of revolutionary for back then, especially in that region, because everything was fighting. Everything was verbal storytelling as well, too. Bards, people don't really realize like They just think a bard just sits in like a tavern or whatever and strums a loot like you see in all these Dungeons and Dragons movies. They're actually more than that. They were actually carried around when people went to battle because it was a sign of morale, just like the drummer boy was. People don't understand that perspective of like, how is music going to help? Put on a really good song in your car when you're having a really bad day. That's the exact same thing. Imagine going to war and all you hear is dun, 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 dun. Like that just gets you so pumped up and ready to fight, which is what some people need. Religion also played a factor back then, too, when people would pray to their God, hoping that they're looking down on them in this time of war. When you feel like you like God is on your side, when you're swinging a sword at someone, you feel like you're unbeatable, which puts a type of like confidence in you that makes you basically damn near unstoppable. And I'm like, that's what I look at. Like I enjoy those little perspective of things too. And it's interesting in Valhalla, you're coming across seas to this new area and there's all these Christian communities and there's, they're, they're mocking the Christian religion saying they worship one God while we have many or something like that. And it's interesting that they start noticing subtle differences and also subtle similarities where they start questioning things in the game, which I'm like, that's so important for a kid, you know, instead of watching a Disney movie to get his like knowledge from, he could play a game or an adult and then actually be interested in this topic to go and want to research it even more. 
Well, first and foremost, so I actually love video games as learning tools. I'm a big gamer myself. Um, I have not played Valhalla. I had a slight aversion to it. The, the Assassin's Creed style of crawling on buildings, I have played like some of the older Assassin's Creeds. I didn't feel like it was going to lend itself well to the Viking era. So I haven't played it for that reason. And I may eventually play it just to be able to say I have played it and offer a more uh, well-rounded opinion. You should make a review of all the things they got wrong. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure a lot of people have done that already. I'm sure there are yeah, people out there that take their video games very seriously. I tend to give most media a little bit of leeway. You know, if I'm watching a movie, I don't expect it to be a hundred percent historically accurate. You know, I can forgive little embellishments for the sake of storytelling. And I guess that's kind of the dichotomy between me as an academic and me as a storyteller. I tend to be a little forgiving of things for the sake of story, but um, so does Valhalla center around like Lindisfarne or because you said that they're invading Christian land. So I assume they're coming to yep. England, correct? Yeah, but I can't remember if it's Conway. I forgot what the it starts with way at the end of their name. If you're going to ask okay. me to remember this, I'm play this in like a couple months. So I'm going to try. Okay. And think back. <laughs> well, if you can't remember, no worries. <laughs> but like it's interesting because they also introduced like types of like these like mixtures or potions that this because they had witches kind of in, involved in it too more like shamans i would say but they were mixing a potion and it's supposed to teleport you to valhalla and that's like he's in this giant acid trip basically like all these mushrooms you have to go gather and they they in uh they talk about the fly algaric mushrooms like Vikings would take fly algaric mushrooms and then fight. And I'm like, that's nuts. Have you, that's like trying to pitch a no hitter on LSD. That's so freaking hard to do. That's, <laughs> but it's just interesting because people talk about like, well, isn't that supposed to make you calm? And I'm like, I think it's just supposed to bring you to a base level of things too. And that was all they really knew. Vikings weren't just like people say they're brutal and like these horrible, like they did horrible things. I'm like, that's all they really knew too. Like at one point when you're a kid, you think that your street, it just ends there. The world is over after your street. And the next thing you know, you realize, no, there's a giant world to consume. And so you find the flat earth and then you fall off. I'm just, I'm just saying though, there's all these like key things to it that I think a lot of people kind of just run with the first thing that they hear, run with the first thing. And there, I pull out more in that game than just slicing some dude's head off. I see more content, especially when you're going around the world and you're coming across stories, a kid who his parents just, Got, I guess they got killed by bandits and he befriends a bear like this bear's taking care of him and you try and help out this kid and the bears attack you trying to protect you and everything like that it's like it's interesting because it makes you think a little bit more they might not be real scenarios but it also leaves it open to like a skeptical type ideal of okay maybe I should research and look you know you google something and then next you know you come across a story that's what I did with uh, Greek mythology when I was learning about that I had this giant thought that I want to ask you is do you think that we've relatively thought around the same basis of things, especially in society, like how our society is going now? Because I thought about this and I asked a Greek mythology professor because I came across a tale that happened to do with transgender. And I, I thought this was just a new topic. And the Native Americans practice it as well, too. Actually, they considered you more of wisdom if you were able to think as a man and think as a woman, which is pretty, that's pretty like incredible to think that we're thinking about this now and they were thinking about it back then. But the story goes that there's this beautiful, handsome son of a god that was swimming in a river. And this nymph came up, which they turn into like trees and things of that sort in Greek mythology, jumps in the river and grabs this guy and starts kissing him on his face, doing all these types of things, and then prays to the gods as this 
guys pushing this nymph off saying, can you make us together forever? And it makes them half man, half woman. And that's the tale. And that's just interesting. I was wondering if you've come across anything that has not maybe a transgender correlation, but just anything that you've seen in society. Well, there, there are certainly a couple well-known um, tales from Norse mythology that have sort of, I guess, um, what one could argue are transgender themes. I mean, Loki transformed into anything and everything, basically, including uh, female creatures at various points. Um, and then I know that Thor cross-dresses. But again, the gods are not my area of expertise so much. So I can't, I don't know the exact stories by heart. I, I believe, I can't see, I can't remember why Thor cross-dresses. I think he's posing as one of the, he might be posing as Freya, I think. Isn't, the, <laughs> isn't Loki's sure. um, son the, or the child one of the, the giant wolf? He, yeah, one of them he, and I don't remember which one it is, to be honest, he gives birth to the child because he transforms into a female creature and gets impregnated, I think. Again, that's Tom not- Tom Hiddleston, what? <laughs> <laughs> that's not my area of expertise, uh, really. I mean, I, I have a rough idea of the Norse pantheon, um, but because I've been more focused on like the, the heroic epics, I don't have all of the, like the, um, you know, poetic Edda and all the little stories like that memorized to the same extent. Um, within like the context of the stories I've read, there isn't, I wouldn't say there is so much a transgender thing, the thing, theme, sorry, a transgender theme. Um, but there is uh, some, I guess, I mean, you could almost argue, it depends on how you want to look at it. You could almost argue that there's a little bit of a feminist element in Das Nibelungenlied, because while it's the story of Siegfried, um, the character Klimheld kind of takes a more prominent role, and a lot of people have argued that she is the protagonist of the story. Um, and I think that the story does something really interesting with the way it handles femininity, because you sort of have this rivalry between Klimhild, who marries Siegfried, and Brunhild, who is married to Klimhild's brother, Gunther. Um, they sort of have a rivalry, which ultimately leads to a lot of the problems in the long term. Uh, however, again, depending on the variation of the story, whether you think that's their fault or whether it's a consequence of other things that were done to them, is going to depend on the variation a little bit. But certainly Das Nibelungenlied sort of presents Klimhild as this very sympathetic character, um, which I think is interesting because, you know, it is at the end of the day a heroic epic that you would think of as being centered around this male character, that he's the one that slays the dragon, he's the one that, you know, has done all the heroic deeds, and yet he's not really the protagonist of the story. So I've always thought that's a little bit interesting. Kind of like um more of like the left hand the right hand in a way of like the main character for instance um i i find this like this is how my brain kind of thinks maybe i'm an idiot i don't know um but when i'm looking at all these like we talk about like um the feuds between the wives for instance or if you look through any really old history tale there's always a battle when it's at home you know that's where the problems and you start to see the downfall of like a civilization or you see the downfall of a society start to collapse is when there's problems at home i mean that's the same stuff that's going on now maybe smaller fights like twitter i wouldn't say is as big as like a giant battle or something with axes but at the same time there's still parts in like a lot of these tales you'll read they're very descriptive on the scenery also as round they're taking in the whole entire environment of everything around them so it makes me kind of think in my own head of like 
at one point was they just were they just sitting by a lake or something before a fight or before they knew the next day they had to go into battle or something and really soaking in every single moment of what they were experiencing where people kind of do that now but it kind of takes something to have them shock like we're not really fearing that we're going to die tomorrow it's a possibility for sure but we're not like starving we're not doing a whole lot of things we're relatively okay when it comes to having comfortability and not really have to worry about survival a whole lot but then back then they always worried about it and when you worry about it much more you're much more gratitude or grateful for the moments that you're soaking in right now which i find is very interesting a lot of these old stories are super detailed in the amount of landscaping that's going on i don't know if someone added that later but it's like a bob ross painting when you're reading it it's like it's crazy well in the context of most pagan texts or pagan influence texts i would say there is an appreciation for nature certainly i mean you did have nature worship going on to an extent and I can't think specifically in like Dasani Bulungan Lead I can't think of I can't remember one scene where it describes a battlefield in great detail I'm trying I can't think of landscapes that are described in great detail but maybe are you like are you talking about like the Greek myths they tend to describe landscapes in great detail and things like that more like from what I can remember of Beowulf they described a lot when I read the story in like 11th grade so all my memories coming from back then but I remember them describing like a lot of like especially like I I don't know if it was their hall that they were describing describing but they were talking about cobblestone for a little bit too so they got very um the Kennings, um, I'm trying to remember which one. I think they call it the Swan Road in Beowulf to describe the ocean and things like that. They use a lot of Kennings in Beowulf to describe the landscape, as far as I can recall. Um, and even the great scenario of speaking about Valhalla, they speak about Valhalla, these great giant like golden doors, you know, these it's an open battlefield with as much food as the eyes can see, you know, it's a feast until you get ready to fight. That's all you do is fight, feast, fight, feast. You get to sit with these great gods at the table and eat and fight and eat all they ever wanted to do. It's this glorious scene. They describe that so intricate. Yeah, they definitely. Yes, they definitely do. Um, so I'm not crazy. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not. Um, I'm just again. I I have a very specific area of like specialization. So it's I'm not the best when it comes to um, recalling things line for line. If you haven't noticed, other than apparently I was able to quote Wordsworth earlier. For some, that's reason. the best but, part about conversation is we don't have to be 100 <laughs> accurate. It's just thoughts. <laughs> but I, I'm not very good when it comes to, especially when you get into like all the different translations and things like that. It can become really hard to recall okay, well, this line is in this story. And, you know, so I remember in Beowulf, they used the Swan Road to describe the ocean. But, and then I think it's a similar comparison. It might be the Odyssey, actually, that they talk about the wine dark sea. Is that the Odyssey that they use? Don't ask me. I believe, I, I believe, I could be wrong, <laughs> but I believe it's the Odyssey. They talk about the wine dark sea, which led to a lot of speculation about um, how they perceived color because, the sea isn't really wine colored and so people kind of question that like okay do they mean like I don't know there's all these different theories about older cultures not really having words for blue and again that's not my area of expertise it's just stuff that I've like dabbled in read a little bit about um but I, I'm pretty sure it's the odyssey that says the wine dark sea 
I've Not talked sure. to a few people who have like got heavily spiritual with psychedelics and written books on it and how it correlates lots of religion and how a lot of it does kind of relate back then too. I know there was, I think it was Graham Hancock or someone of that sort that was on a Joe Rogan podcast talk about how they tested the inside of the cups of these old like ritualistic chalices and they were able to find like pieces of like, I think it was like psychedelic mushrooms that were like infused into the wine and things of that sort. I'm like, it makes sense when they're creating the stories for sure. But I'm like, I feel like that was more heavily infused into our societies, at least all these religions. It was like sprinkled through these societies more than how it is now, where it's completely done a 180, where we're kind of against it. Yes, it it does seem that, because I'm trying to think, like, I know that obviously we were talking earlier about the Vikings using psychedelic mushrooms at various points. Um, and then, because I know that, and forgive me if this sounds ignorant, because it's definitely not my area of specialization, but there are some Native American religions that also use peyote. Yeah, peyote. Um, definitely. Yeah, I don't know how exactly it's used. I've not researched that in depth, so I don't feel qualified to comment on it really, other than observing the parallels between psychedelics being used across different cultures. I'm trying to think because. I, I want to focus obviously on what the stuff you know too as well, but I just my mind starts to wander when I look at like if you look at <laughs> I'm all fine. These... I'm I'm the queen of going on tangents, so you're free to go on tangents <laughs> as much as you want. Well, you just opened up the door. Um, so <laughs> when they talk about like especially like going into battle and stuff too, when you look through any of these religions, whether it's the Native Americans, whether it's Greeks, whether it's the Romans, whether it's Spartans, whatever you want to go, the list goes on and on and on. You can really kind of focus in. I think it's a lot of this perceptive view of how they viewed things was a little bit simpler, but also so complex when it came to the fact of what they viewed their own lives as. I mean, their lives were like spiritual tokens in a way too. A lot of them believed in what they believed in so heavily that they thought like, you know, they were personally messaging them. And that's kind of what we do with prayer today, but it's not seen with that as drastic feature as they did back in the day. I mean, they would sit and wait and hope that something came across their way, especially when it came to food, if they were praying for food, you know, there was maybe some people didn't get food and then that that happened but at the same time it was more of this moment i think that's why psychedelics were such a big thing back then was it helped them feel like this i guess unnatural kind of view of the world some type of spiritual awakening in a way that made them feel like they were contacting something of a primordial essence yeah and i would say that you know compared compared to i'm thinking in terms of western culture so my brain automatically jumps to Christianity, but of course there are still hundreds of different religions in the world. Um, but when we're looking at Europe, for example, and kind of comparing and contrasting like modern Europe versus medieval and pre-medieval Europe, um, you know, you get into kind of, um, they had a much more cause and effect relationship with the gods, is I think kind of what you're saying, that they felt like there was consequence to you know you kind of have the oh you've angered the gods stereotype of you know it, they thought they had to make offerings to different gods for different purposes and if you did something wrong then maybe there might be consequences for that whereas obviously when it comes to modern christianity modern prayer it's much less cause and effect and, and you know if you prayed for something and it didn't end up going the way you had planned most people who subscribe to the Christian belief would not probably blame God for that in the same way that, you know, somebody who was pagan back in the day might think, okay, well, if this battle didn't 
go right. Maybe it's because we didn't give the right offering to Freya or something to that effect. So I, it's certainly a much more direct, it was perceived as a much more direct relationship, I think, with higher powers. Um, and they were certainly more vengeful than the, the modern Christian New Testament God seems to be. I can't speak to the Old Testament God. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not religious at all, but I just find that so fascinating when I look at those religions, for instance, because I feel like that's, the, that's what you needed back then, too. If you were thinking that like you're a small kid running around your village and you think that this certain God is looking after your village, you never really all your fears kind of go away. I mean, you're going to explore more. And that just opened up the area for exploration when it comes to don't worry, guys, we're not going down. We're discovering new land because Poseidon's watching us. That's just a whole other effect that plays into it. I think a lot of that probably comes from, you know, the types of especially with confidence, a lot of that probably comes from religion based stuff too because of the concept of they had this idea that something bigger was watching over them and protecting them i mean it's like when we have a loved one that passes away we think they're around us 24 7 do we know i have no clue but it's that feeling that we know that brings us comfort and i look at that like i don't not religious but that is fascinating as hell to me the fact that there's that type of feeling and that could lead to so much of this advancement that happened back in the day of in history all these i mean spartans going into war i had a spartan historian his name's steve great guy i tossed it out like steve he's a really nice dude but when he was on here he brought in a perspective of like when they were praying and you know they would go into battle making sure a lot of the spartans were gay like no one talks about that they they instead of like looking at it like this is my co-worker this is my brother in arms this is my lover that plays a different effect now now you're protecting the person you love and if someone raises a sword to them it's also raising a sword to you that is something that i'm like damn like are we brainwashed today too instead of being brainwashed to buy coca-cola products can i be brainwashed to like be productive as shit that'd be awesome <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there, there's certainly, uh, when you get into like historical sexualities, there's a lot of interesting subject matter that you can really delve into with that. But I know that um, there was, you know, ancient Rome, don't even get me started on ancient <laughs> Roman sexuality. That's a whole different thing. And again, not something I specialize in. So my observations are just very surface level. But um, I certainly think that there's still probably a lot of research to be done in those areas you know we're just kind of coming upon an era where people are more comfortable uh probably openly acknowledging and talking about those aspects of history you have the stereotype of um uh everyone always you know the, the history professor that says oh they were just really good friends when reading a letter between you know a, a two same-sex friends that doesn't really read like friends um and so i think we're probably coming upon an era where hopefully we can get more thorough research into those aspects of history and hopefully it will be more continue to be more and more accepted within academic fields and less and less needlessly challenged because of course you know we always want things to be backed up with evidence where necessary but at the same time i think that there's probably been a lot of evidence ignored through the course of history because people just didn't want to acknowledge those aspects of things I think it's important to highlight a lot of those aspects. I think that's probably why we have a major identity crisis as a society today. I mean, so many people are finding out information that th they were told as a kid that I found out Martin Luther King was killed by the government. Jesus Christ. You want to talk about identity crisis? I lost my shit. I was like, hang on. The Martin cartoon didn't teach me that. They taught me something completely different. And it's like, 
if you just tell people the honest parts about this, you're actually going to have a lot more people that are like, oh my God, we actually think around the same basis. For instance, my dad has this had this giant metal band when he was my age and there was a journal that he kept in a composition book well when i was like 12 years old i came across the composition book and i went to read it he took it from me he said no when you're older i'll let you read it and because there's horrible stuff in here and i was like what like what are you talking about he's just writing songs so i was like what's bad i, I can say things if they're in a song right and he goes no you can't read this and then I, I hit 18 and i read it and i was like looked at him i was like you think like i do like the fucking crazy shit that i say all these types of things you think around the same base he goes yeah he goes you're actually and that kind of revelation that like oh i'm not alone i'm not just this crazy outside outcast type person. I think that's kind of what's needed today is because everyone's kind of feeling like that or they want that, but they necessarily don't. They want to be a part of a community. You want to be part of the people around you. And I think these history, this real brutal, yes, it's brutal, but be happy that you don't think that way anymore. See how horrible that was to you now looking back then. And that's, you got to think of the times too. Like that's a whole different thing. The perspective back then you got to, I've talked to plenty of anthropologists that are like, you can't judge them now. I'm like, you can't, you got to look at that was the time, but you relate a little bit too, when it comes to the aspect of believing in something, wanting to achieve something, wanting to conquer the biggest thing you possibly can. And even though it might be scary at the time, you're overcoming something that has been on your mind. It's your biggest fear. You know, you want to be remembered. Bards were around to sing your tales. People want that now. People want to be tweeted about in a good way, not in a Donald Trump way. That's the <laughs> same shit. Like it's, it's it, to me, that's where I start finding like correlations. I'm like, well, this actually relates to this. And then talking to so many people and getting so many ideas from it it's just like oh my god like we're all kind of like on the same rope here but we're all trying to pick a different thread and i'm like let's just all focus on the same one and we might actually get some something come across yeah yeah and i think you make an interesting point about the desire to be remembered because that is a huge thematic thing in germanic epics you know beowulf for example you know i was talking about the um the ziggelman passage which is supposed to be a bard sort of drawing comparisons potentially different people argue comparison or is it meant to contrast or you know but either way it, it's comparing these figures to beowulf as examples of heroes who stood the test of time and i i do think that's really it's interesting when you get into the religious aspect of that because in germanic paganism materialistic I guess, worldly desires were sort of accepted and even encouraged. Whereas at least on paper, when you get into Christianity, it's sort of discouraged. It doesn't mean people have always acted accordingly because I know that, you know. Oh, so that just teaches you if, you know, people say one thing and they do another, if anything, that just teaches you the hidden message of that. <laughs> well, and, and in Beowulf, I think that it's specifically meant to sort of, I, I argue that that passage with Zygmunt is meant to contrast because it's a very similar, the story is presented in a very similar way. However, Zygmunt wins his treasure and kind of goes on with his life, lives it out in fame, blah, 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 at least according to the Beowulf variation of his story. Um, however, Beowulf, at the end of his own story, spoiler warning, dies. <laughs> Hopefully I don't have to give spoilers for something that old, but, um, you know, he dies and he doesn't get, end up getting the riches and, and the material wealth out of it and, and doesn't really want it, 
but on the flip side, he does get remembered by his people. But it's presented in a very um, melancholy way, I would say. At the at the end of Beowulf, the fact that he's died so heroically and is going to be remembered isn't really presented as a happy thing. Whereas from the more pagan perspective, that would kind of be an honorable way to die, more or less. Um, and so I think that's interesting, and that's sort of where you get into the the Christian element in Beowulf that's sort of layered over an older pagan oral tradition, potentially. Do you think that a lot of like what they were really trying to capture was just more of an expansion of who they are and kind of wanting to change people in a way? Or do you think it, more of it was a factor of like wanting riches and treasure? Because if you look through a lot of like games and if you look through a lot of like movies and stuff, they depict different perspectives of things some people want gold and then some people want to expand and then some people just want to rule so are, are you asking like what i think that like the viking or like pagan goal was or you say viking or pagan i i do i do think you make an excellent point obviously that it's always going to be subjective it's always going to be on an individual basis no group of people is going to be completely homogenous with their their thoughts and their motivations and things like that um i think religiously it was certainly more encouraged or maybe not necessarily even encouraged but so much as accepted um to pursue material wealth and to pursue fame and you know just again worldly worldly achievements um within germanic paganism and so i would assume then that people were able to be more open about it that it was more generally just accepted because if your religion is fine with it and encouraging it you're not going to feel a reason to not pursue the things that you want to pursue. Whereas I'm sure then once you enter the Christian era of Germanic Europe, um, which for different countries varies when that came about, but um, once you enter that era, I'm sure some people would have seen the need to stifle their their goals and you know whatever whatever it was that interested them, they may, may have felt a little bit of a sense of guilt if it was a little bit too materialistic. Whereas I don't think in a pagan culture, they would have necessarily felt as guilty about that. We need to invent time travel to like figure <laughs> this out. Yeah, it's all of course very speculative. Uh, that's, you know, history for you and, and analyzing old literature. Uh, the best we can do is speculate unless somebody wrote down their intentions somewhere. Or, Had a you know. diary. The Mormon yeah. <laughs> religion has a diary from like their great, 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 great grandparents. Like they have, uh, uh, past guest of mine, his name is Steve Cantwell. Um, he has his like great, 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 great grandfather's diaries when they fought the Indians. And it's like from day every day, just writing in that journal. I was like, man, I would love to ancestry.com doesn't know shit. I'm on there. They're giving me Robertson's in a whole other area. I'm like, I'm not related to the guitar player. Not at all. But they're like, but it has the same last name as you. And I'm like, I get that. But that's not how it works. So, so you, you go by Robbie Robertson. So is your first name? Robert then or is that like a nickname that came from <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, it, okay, because I'm curious. So my my own grandfather, um, he was adopted, so it's not a family last name or anything, but it was Robinson and he was in the army and went by Robbie. So he was Robbie Robinson. But that was not his birth name and that was not even his legal name. He just went by Robbie Robinson because everyone called him by his last name. Cooler than mine. <laughs> I'm named my middle name is after the singer of Skid Row. I don't know if you know who that band is. I, I didn't i do know them but i don't know the oh, singer who's named sebastian oh Seb okay yes i do actually yes yeah, sebastian yeah what's Bach. his 
Bach. It is Bach. Okay. I totally second guessed myself for a second there. Just like the composer. Um, He's best friends yeah. with my, well, was best friends with my parents. I don't know if they still talk. It was, I've been, oh, wow, I'm, really? I'm 23. So I think it's been a while, but <laughs> just, wow, yeah. that's awesome. I wish I was named after like, ba like I said, Beowulf. That's like name you give a kid. That's a beautiful, why can't you have an older like name for a kid? Why has it always got to be like, this is Diamond, this is Karen, this is what I'm like, can we just call them like old school Aristotle? Or oh, you got to be bold. Your kid's going to have a huge reputation to live up to if he's going to be called Aristotle. So I actually wanted, we have two dogs and our first dog is named Odysseus because oh, yeah. love the Odyssey. So his name is Odysseus. So our second dog, I wanted to name Beowulf. However, we call Odysseus Odie as a nickname. And my husband was like, what are you going to call Beowulf as a nickname? Beo? Wolfie? Like, he didn't like that. And so we ended up, we didn't name our second dog Beowulf, unfortunately. BW. Yeah, I know. But his, so his name is uh, Dougal, because they're golden retrievers, which are originally they're from Scotland. So we gave the second one a Scottish name. <laughs> we had, um, my buddy had Newfoundlands, and he, mm -hmm. he named one of them Diesel. And he let me name one Zeus. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Come on now. Yeah, I, I used to have a, a Dalmatian named Athena, which I have since heard that apparently Athena is a very common name for people to name their dogs. I did not know that. It's my time. cousin's name. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Athena. Yeah, that's a great, great, strong name. Um, but yeah, it's because Dalmatians supposedly. You better be Dalmatia. getting into Harvard with that name. Jesus. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, it, Dalmatia was near was it part of greece i'm not actually sure it's the first i've ever heard of it well it's what dalmatians are named after and so that's why i'd given her a greek name was because i think dalmatia i'm like questioning myself now this was a while ago so <laughs> but yeah um i believe dalmatians have greek origins and so i had then given her a greek name no, but then our golden is named Odysseus and he has zero Greek origins so that was just because we liked the name <laughs> I was like no they have spots not orders. yeah I know <laughs> um what do you call it uh I was about I had a something I was gonna say to that man I see this is where I need to start studying more of this ancient religion type stuff not just ancient religion but ancient history in general it's just so hard because they don't give you specific classes for it there is a kind of a you know they say Latin's a dead language and it's like yeah it's you don't want it to be forever gone though yeah maybe one day technology is able to decipher but a lot of this is like it's hard work that you do being able to translate types of stuff and then being able to also remember every single name when it comes to they named everything like a fucking like they owned a label maker like it was like <laughs> all, and they're not normal names at least that we could remember maybe back then they were normal but they were so exotic where if you're trying to speak them now it's like you have to do a pronunciation is there an apostrophe above the e then you got to say it this way if there's an apostrophe above the a you got to say it this way i'm like oh good god <laughs> yeah i'm not I, I said earlier i'm not really confident in any of my pronunciations except for a modern german pronunciation anything else i do my best but then in my head i'm like there's probably somebody out there that's gonna be like oh she said that wrong well i i tried okay <laughs> unfortunately i do not get to speak conversational old norse on the daily basis so um but uh, what you said about uh, taking classes and trying to pursue this kind of information uh, kind of brings me back to, I think, I, I, we didn't really finish talking about it at the beginning of the conversation about like um, how I had even gotten interested in studying Germanic myth in the first place, because it was, um, to be honest, it was initially, so I like Tolkien, I love Lord of the Rings. Um, 
haven't seen and it. And so when I uh, when I started pursuing my bachelor's in literature, I wanted something that had like swords and heroism and that's just kind of what I was interested in. And so in my first class, it was just like a sort of survey of the British canon literature. Um, Beowulf was one of the first texts we studied. And so I kind of dove right into that. And that was like my first year, I think, in college as an English major. Um, and then from there, kind of had that foundation then that like, when they ended up asking me what I wanted to do my capstone on, it was like, uh, I guess maybe Beowulf. But then I, I started doing research, came across the Ziegelmann passage, and that's when I got into Das Nibelungenlied in the Volsunga saga. I never had any classes on it. Um, and I was actually told by my professors at the time, and I don't, I don't mean this to talk bad on them, it's just, it was simply just the way it was, because they hadn't read Das Nibelungenlied or the Volsunga saga, they said I wasn't allowed to do my senior capstone on that subject matter. So I had to do it on Beowulf and just kind of use the other texts as like supplementary texts. Um, that's but so now I'm in a master's program, so they let me do what I want. <laughs> I was about to say, that's so crazy that you found that niche of a topic to get into when you could have broad brushed it. Does that make it complicated when you're trying to find like a specific, like to get a job as like an area of study? So uh, potentially, I suppose, um, because I didn't really, you know, you can't really pursue academic jobs with just a bachelor's, unfortunately. So I haven't really gotten into applying for anything academic. Ever since I got my bachelor's, I worked in marketing for years. Um, and like, I took a few years off before pursuing my master's. Um, I guess we'll see how it goes once I have my master's. I'm currently trying to get involved with like internships and volunteer work for a couple different museums because technically my master's is in museum studies. Do more podcasts. So, You'll yeah, have a yeah. resume built. <laughs> but um, I, I've, I've tried my best to kind of establish a platform and sort of build up my resume so that hopefully you know, even if my information is a bit niche, I will still, you know, come out on the other end of my master's degree with a decent resume and hopefully look like a desirable candidate for a job. But I'm also, I'm very flexible. I don't have something specific that I want to do. You know, if I end up teaching part-time at a community college, I'm fine with that. If I can get into working at a museum, I would love that. If I can work at an archive or at a library, That'd be great too. I'm I'm kind of open to a lot of things, I suppose. And of course, then I have my writing on the side, which it'd be great if that could also be a career. I don't like having my eggs in one basket, basically. <laughs> it's kind of how I am, like my algorithm guy who tries to study like, what's his show about? Nope, you're not going to be able to get it. I'm sorry. It's just my brain on like whatever day I'm feeling it. It's yeah, that's that's about. my my brand, quote unquote, on Twitter when it comes to like marketing myself. You know, like I said, I worked in marketing for years. So I have a pretty good idea in my head of like how you should brand yourself. You need to have a consistent aesthetic. You know, you want to present yourself in a consistent manner. I'm not really capable of doing that on a personal level. Like if I had a an actual like company, sure, great. But on a personal level, I, my interests are so all over the place that it's like well just you know did you know why i raised (laughs) you know why i raised my hand when he said consistent Mm -hmm. episode every day for two and a half years now that's very consistent wow every single day never a day off 800 something no days off if it's christmas i I saw that your episode episode. count was very high and i was like wow okay he's been doing this for a while (laughs) i've already see 
that's the thing with podcasts. And I think, especially when you invite people on, like, I know it's a random DM. That's the crazy thing is that people think like, oh, this kid, what's he about? And then it's like, is it a conversation? It's a hundred percent conversation. I've accepted everything I've wanted to. I, my podcast has saved someone's life. I had a past guest that was on here and then I had him on later. Turns out from his first episode, his wife took him to the hospital after that because she noticed some weird things about the way he was acting on camera, which I just thought it was normal. It was my first time meeting him. Found out he had uh, diabetes. So found out through my podcast. So he was, he actually went blind for a month because it was already at that point. It was getting too late. And yeah, so that was, that was shocking to me. Yeah, that's crazy. But, and then also shirts, because I like making shirts now. I don't know. I'm into a bunch of shit. I can't just stay focused. If I want to talk about cults, I also want to talk to the leaders and the people that have left them. I don't know. I'm interesting in all these categories. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very, uh, I actually had like a bit of a crisis about my, um, uh, doing my master's thesis. You know, I was, I had a meeting in April where I was supposed to kind of like do like a rough uh, prospectus and like a little bit of a pitch to the department about what I was going to write on. And I had a little bit of a crisis because I have pursued uh, Germanic myth so actively. Mm -hmm. However, my other random history related passion um, is bog bodies, like Iron Age bog bodies in also still for the most part Germanic Europe and a little bit in Scotland and Ireland. The hell is um, a bog body? <laughs> oh, now, now you've got me on a topic that I'll really, really get into. Um, so a bog body is basically a natural mummy. They're preserved by the acidity of the soil in Europe's bogs. Um, oh my God, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> yeah, so um, I find bog bodies, they might be a little bit morbid, but they're absolutely fascinating to me. Um, okay, the way I you, the way you paused on that, you said, I find bog bodies. I was like, where the hell are I you wish. living? That would, yeah, that would be, that'd be, 10 times more interesting if I was actually out there finding them. But no, I, I find them fascinating. Um, and so when it came time to pick my master's thesis, I kind of had this little crisis in my head because, you know, I mentioned my master's is technically in museum studies. So whatever I do, I'm supposed to be drawing upon like, uh, you know, how, how things are presented in museums, how we store things in archives, you know, something to that effect. And so when it came to the mythology, it was like, okay, I'm gonna work with manuscripts. Um, potentially try and work directly with some of the old manuscripts if possible. However, I then had the idea about bog bodies because what I think is really interesting about, I think everything is interesting about them actually, but one thing I find really interesting is how they are preserved then once they're removed from the bog and presented and displayed in museums because it is the display of human remains. And so you get into kind of this, um, personal. Territory. I guess, is it is it right, is it moral? And how do we display them respectfully while still preserving them as best as we can. Um, I went to the British Museum at the end of 2019, like right before the, the pandemic hit and I wasn't able to <laughs> travel. Um, but so I was at the British Museum and um, was very excited to see the uh, Lindau Man, which is a bog body that they have uh, there. And I was a little disappointed with how they displayed it compared to the way they display some of their other mummies that some might argue they have a less than solid claim over. You know, the Lindau man is a natural mummy found in the British Isles. And they have a very solid claim over it. And yet it's almost sort of sidelined, I would say, the way it's displayed compared to you have other countries that display their bog bodies in a much more thought out and respectful way, 
in my opinion. Um, so as much as I enjoyed visiting the British Museum, I was a little underwhelmed with how they displayed their bug body. You're the fourth person I've talked to that's had a problem with the British Museum. <laughs> I think anyone in museum studies or any kind of adjacent field probably has beef with the British Museum. <laughs> In one way or another. It's surprising because two of the people that out of the four are museum curators and they do not like the British Museum. So I'm like, okay. I mean, well, it's very, you know, I respect it as the, the institution that it is. And it's very influential within the field of museum studies, museum curation. You know, it's, it's an old museum. It's been around forever. A lot of things that they've done through the years have impacted the way we think of museums as a whole. But I do think when it comes to certain subject matter in the 21st century, there are some choices they've made that are, they're a little controversial. They remain a little controversial. Um, you know, you have the whole repatriation argument about whether or not certain things should be returned to their countries. That's what, all right. So I was going to paraphrase what they said, but it was like, they got stolen shit in there. That's what I was yeah. going to paraphrase. <laughs> uh, basically, basically. Yeah. Um, and so the repatriation discussion is sort of over, you know, who truly has claim over that kind of thing? How do we responsibly return things to their country of origin? You know, is it responsible, for example, if the country of origin is at war? Do we want to return historical objects there? Is that our job to make that judgment call if it doesn't really belong to us in the first place? And I'm saying us like I work at the British Museum. I obviously don't. But <laughs> I mean, just in general, when it comes to museum studies, those are the discussions that you know, happen even on the smaller scale, um, you know, when you get into like a smaller American museums, if we have Native American artifacts, you know, are those really ours to keep and preserve? And, you know, the, the argument that a lot of people tend to make in favor of keeping objects is that, you know, we will take better care of them than their rightful owners. So that's, that's the whole thing. I, I have to take better care of my car if I put a tarp over it, but I'm not going to spend the time to put tarp over it. That's like, that's what the, you got to look at that with that type of logic. Like, okay, you're going to say you're going to take better care of it, but are you really, are you just trying to get more money? Yeah. Well, oh, that's a whole thing with the British Museum for sure. Next and, episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that's when I, when I talk about like the way the bog body is displayed in the British Museum, it's not marketed really that this is a natural mummy that no one's going to come in and say england doesn't have claim over that particular natural mummy because it's from england and yet that's not something that they really include in their marketing materials they don't really actively promote their bog body and it's certainly not displayed in a way it, it, which okay to be fair most of the british museum their displays are just kind of like flat it's very like a cookie cutter they kind of display everything in the same kind of case in the same manner but i would still say that they put a lot more effort into marketing their Egyptian mummies than they do into marketing the fact that they have a bog body, which obviously they're famous for their Egyptian mummies, but it's just, it's interesting when you get into that money argument because that was money argument, not mummy argument. I realize I kind of said that fast. Um, but when you get into the, you know, is it about profit or preservation? I would argue it's probably a little more about profit because they're so famous for their collection of Egyptian artifacts and the mummies are such a central a focal point of that part of their collection that I think they probably worry if they give them back and nobody's going to come to the museum which I don't think would be the case I think it's a question of reframing their marketing but they've not really made any effort to do that 
and they don't seem eager to jump into repatriation negotiations with a lot of other countries. So we're going to do another episode. I want to have you back on the show, but I also want to talk about bog bodies a hell of a lot more on that new episode. Um, okay. But Kristen, where can people find your books or whatever links do you have that people can find your work as well too? Uh, so the best place to find almost everything about me would just be my website. It's kristenjmiller.com. Kristen is spelled weird. It's K-R-I-S-T-Y-N-J-Miller.com. Um, and that will have links to pretty much all of my social media. I blog semi-regularly about a lot of these different topics. I don't really have a specific theme to my blog. It's literature, it's history, it's museum studies, it's fiction writing, it's everything. Um, I don't have any of my own books out yet. I just got my literary agent within the past year, so I'm hoping within the near future I will be able to give more details on when my actual books will be published. But in the meantime, you can read me go on a million different rants on my blog. <laughs> I'll make sure I link everything in the description. Is there anything you want to end on? Uh, no, no, but I will look forward to having a conversation about bog bodies in the future. <laughs> Like I send me your availability. I'm putting it in the books because that sounds <laughs> exciting. I can't believe that happened right at the end, but that sounds yeah. really I started thinking of like when a body, like if they find like a dead body in a water, it soaks up all the water. Kind of like when a baby's born. Look at that. I'm relating death and life. When a baby's born, they're blue. And I'm like, is it dying? And they're like, no, it's just infused with a lot of water. And I'm like, mm -hmm. that's scary. 